Spring is here. The rain and the sun has been constant over these last few works. It was Derby weekend, which is basically a holiday, right, in the Kentucky Anna area. And uh, that means grass is also growing. Our mower recently broke, and my wife has been on me to get it fixed, and I just hasn't, haven't been able to get it fixed. So my wife got her own idea. She took her sewing sh- uh, shears out to our front yard, got on her hands and knees, and began to clip the grass one blade at a time. I come home, and I stand next to her as she's doing this. I just look at her. This nod a couple times. She looks up at me as she's clipping the blades of grass. I, I don't say anything. I go in the house. I come back out, I give her a toothbrush, and I say, when you're finished, you might as well sweep the driveway. (laughs) That's when the fight started. (laughs) The doctor said, I survive, but I'll always have that really bad limp. (laughs) She's the hardest, there she's over there. She's She's the most formidable opponent I'll ever have. Now that's a joke, okay, that's a joke. Uh, I love my wife, and I certainly would never say that. But David in the Old Testament, though, he would face a formidable opponent. If you're familiar with the story, he would face an opponent over nine feet tall. He weighed over 400 pounds. He had torso armor all, all by itself that weighed over 125 pounds. This was a giant, literally, Goliath. He was overmatched, David was. But David, through strategy, and through the right weaponry. He saw victory. Now, why do I bring this up? I bring this up because I hope this lesson is never wasted on us. You see, if we want to walk in victory, if we want to have and win the battle that is being waged around us, then we're going to have to have the right strategy. We're going to have the right weaponry as well. Because see, there's this invisible war going on. And I don't know if you know it or not, but the prize is you. The prize is me. You know, we began to, this preaching series several weeks ago, and right as we began, all hell broke loose in my home. Uh, several things broke in our house. Both our vehicles had issues that we had to rectify. Our family got sick twice. It was crazy. And it was all because I knew of attack. I realized that I was the target. And see, this is war, and you're going to get hurt when it comes to war. See, our enemy, he's fighting. He's fighting to take your marriage down. He's fighting to take your relationships down. He's fighting to take your friendships down. He's fighting to take your neighborhood down, your city down, your career down, your work down. He is in a battle and he wants nothing more than to completely wreck your life. Your prize or your, the prize is you and his prize is destruction. The question I want to ask this morning is, is anybody ready and willing to walk in victory? We've been in this preaching series in Ephesians. We've been going verse by verse. We come to Ephesians chapter 6. If you'd like to get out a Bible or a smartphone or a tablet this morning and follow along, we'll be in verse 10. And Paul, from prison, he writes the book of Ephesians to the Ephesus church and to the surrounding churches in Asia Minor. Paul has faced his greatest battles. He's seen his greatest breakthrough. And now he wants all believers to see the same thing. He knows this is his greatest work on spiritual warfare. And he begins to write this letter chapter by chapter, layer by layer, until he gets to chapter 6, verse 10, the pinnacle, the climax of the letter. And this is where we start in verse 10. 
Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against the flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep in praying for all of the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare fearlessly as I should. Tychicus, the dear brother and faithful servant of the Lord, which I tell you everything so that you also may know how I am. And what I am doing, I am sending him to you for this very purpose, that you may know who you are and that he may encourage you. And then he gives his benediction, Paul does. Peace to you, brothers and sisters, and love with faith from God and Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we've heard your word. Now would it begin to inspire and would it instruct, would it transform for those of us here who are the doubters, those of us who are here but maybe we're far from you, or those of you who today maybe are weary and tired, or those of us who are just anxious to learn, may you encourage us, inspire us, sharpen us. May my words be your words, God, and may your spirit truly guide. In your name we pray. Amen. Paul starts out in verse 10. He says, finally. He wants them to know that he's ending the letter. He also wants them to know that they're in an invisible war. And now he's about to leverage the words that he's going to say. He says, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. You see, we have overcoming resistance to the evil one, to Satan, to the devil. Now, for those of us who have kids, we at times feel like that our children have no rivals. That they have no equals on the ball field or the classroom or even acting in their life. We just think that they have arrived. Now, we, don't, we really don't think that, but there are times. But did you know that the God, he has no rival? He has no equal? That he is the authority of all authorities? And when you realize that you are weak, that is when you can realize that he is strong? A great example of this is Gideon in Judges chapter 7. There, Gideon, he's facing over 100,000 people. He's got a, an army of 32,000. If you don't know odds or math very well, which I'm not very good at math, that's a lot of people that he's facing. And God helps him out. God actually weans his army down from 32,000 to 300. Thanks, God. Appreciate it. Gideon is fearful already because he's the youngest in his family and he doesn't have the skill set. Now he's really scared. And God says, watch this. And Gideon and his little teeny army defeats hundreds of thousands of God's enemies. Have you ever felt like that you faced a mountain in your life? You ever felt overwhelmed? Here's what I want you to know today. It's not how strong you are, but it's the source where you gain your strength. The Bible says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. 
And that's certainly the case. Paul wants us to know, look, you can be strong. And then he gives instructions how to do so in verse 11. He begins, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. He says, put on. In the Greek imperative, which is the original language, it means that we are to have a responsibility as a follower of Christ to put on this armor. It's our, it's our responsibility daily to do so. That is how he wrote this. And then he says so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Now, where does he get the idea in, uh, for, of armor? Well, he gets the idea of armor because of where Paul is. He's in prison, but he's in house arrest. It's kind of a cushy way of to be in prison, okay? We're free, but he wasn't so free, so we can say that. But he is being guarded by these rotation of guards. And so all day and every night, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, he's hanging out with these guards. And what are they wearing? They're wearing Roman armor. So he sees this Roman armor. He's trying to communicate, okay, what does spiritual war look like? I'll use Roman warfare. It's right in front of me. So he talks about armor, and then he talks about how we're able to fight against the enemy, Satan. Now, Paul, he has this cosmic perspective. His cosmic perspective is of our enemy. Our enemy has been called many things in Scripture. He's been called a ruler of demons, the prince of the power of the air, the god of this world, an adversary, a slanderer. He's insidious. He feeds on your pain and anguish. He has no morals. He has no compassion. And he has no conscience. And he wants you to be brought down. If you want to study him more, he is really public enemy number one to God and God's children. And I put a several scriptures in there that you can look up and study later. We're introduced to this fallen angel in Genesis chapter uh, 3 verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God made. And then in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus himself speaks to him. Now look, he's been working his craft for thousands of years. Now look, I'm not very good at math. I'm just going to be honest. How many of you are with me? You're just not very good at math. That's right. That's okay. Now, if I had 100 years to study math, I'd probably get a little better. If I had 1,000 years to study math, you'd call me Einstein 10 times over. Satan has been studying the human mind, the human heart, the human condition for thousands upon thousands of years. Do you think he's pretty good at what he does? You better believe it. That's why Paul says, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. He has these, as Paul says, schemes. These are tactics. These are blueprints. These are the battle plans. And he is out to sink your ship. You know, I, I grew up always wanting to be on TV as a kid. And there was always one channel I wanted to be on, ESPN. I was wanting to be on ESPN, but you know what? Even though I do look like I'm six foot four on this stage, I'm not. Just the other day, I, I, met, I met some newer people to our church, and they're great people, and and they meet me, and I, and I, I talk to them. And, and then the husband kind of hits the wife on the shoulder a little bit. And he goes, I told you he wasn't six foot four. <laughs> but I grew up wanting to be on ESPN, and, and I wanted to be on the top ten. Well, one day my dream came true. I was on the ESPN top ten. Actually, one of the most famous ones, if you want to be exact. There I was at the Milwaukee Brewers Stadium. Miller, I think it's called Miller Stadium, right? Yeah, Miller Stadium, I think. And um, we're in the front row, first seat, right behind home plate. 
And it just happened that day that Randy Johnson broke the strikeout record on that game. And he was also retiring. So there I am behind home plate the entire time on national television. And sure enough, I'm on ESPN's top 10, baby, when Randy Johnson breaks the strikeout record. I'll sign autographs later. All right, don't worry about it. I'll even sign your bikes, guys, all right, afterwards. <laughs> but I'm watching that, ESPN Top 10. And I sit there after I get done and I go, well, that didn't feel really that cool. That's what, that's what Satan does, though. His schemes make you think, man, if I can just get to this, if I can just buy that, if I can just drive this, if I can just earn this, if I can just have this in my bank account, if I can just climb the ladder to this, if I can just accumulate this, well, then I will feel and be satisfied. But yet his schemes wreck us even further. His schemes do this in a number of ways. Negative thoughts that he encourages us so often lead to depression of weeks upon weeks at times. Our pride that just so happens to be just fed on an ongoing basis, what happens is that it leads us to lust and even a fall. Or maybe that person that really just gets under your skin, you have a conversation with them, and it ends up wrecking your day and ends up wrecking your week and your family or your friends, they pay for your bad mood. That's why Martin Luther, he would say it like this, in a mighty fortress is our God. He wrote, he wrote this, there is a battle, right? And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure for lo, his doom is sure. Uh, one little word shall fell him. And Paul continues, he says, for our struggle, it's not against flesh and blood. You see, we can know two things about that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. First one is this, that it's personal. The word struggle actually has to do with wrestling. Now, when I grew up, WWE was huge. And for a while there, I went through a period where I thought it was actually real. Now, if I just busted your bubble, I'm sorry, okay? But Paul isn't talking about WWE. He's talking about Roman Greco wrestling. These beasts of men. They were completely greased up, and they would come face to face in combat and wrestling. And that is what Paul's talking about, that it's close and it's personal. And the second thing that he wants us to know is that it's supernatural. You see, oftentimes the invisible war is going to look very much like it's visible, but it's not. Now, the fact remains is that you're not going to get a knock on the door and ding dong, and there's a guy at the door with a yellow suit with horns and a pitchfork and say, I'm the devil and I'm here to fight. That's not how it's going to happen. It's going to look like flesh and blood, but it's not always going to be the case. And what he's going to be after is you trying to take territory in the promises of God in your life. So for those of you who are marriage, what it's going to look like is you seeing, you know what, we're good in these areas, but man, there are some areas where, you know what, we haven't even uh, walked into yet, and God is asking us to walk into those, and you begin to walk towards those, and all of a sudden, all hell breaks loose. The reason why all hell breaks loose in your marriage is because the devil isn't going to say, you know what, oh, I'm sorry, I was standing on that stuff. Here, man, you can have it. He's not going to say that. He's going to say, you ready for war? This is going to cost you. That's what he's going to do. He's going to do that same in your friendships, your dating relationships in every area. That's why the Bible says, submit yourself to God, resist the devil, and he's going to flee. 
So there, Paul, he then says, look, therefore, put on the armor of God. And then he begins to talk about the weaponry that we have. And so from here on out, we're going to look at the weapons that we have at our disposal. In our listening guide, you're going to be able to follow along. You're going to be able to take notes. And you're going to be able to very make applicational points here. Those of you who are a Tolkien fan, I don't know if you, I have any this morning, but he comes up with this Middle Earth. And, and this fable that he comes up with has to do with Bilbo Baggins and Frodo, his apprentice. And Bilbo gives um, Frodo this, this coat woven by dwarves from Middle Earth, and it's known to be impenetrable. Well, in the same way, Paul, he wants us to know this full armor of God. It is built by the, the hammers of heaven, and it is truly impenetrable. And he goes on to list six weapons. And these six weapons, five of them are defensive and one offensive. So let's look at one weapon at a time. The first weapon is in verse 14. It says, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. Now what this means is this, that in that time and place, soldiers would wear these tunics. And these tunics had to be secured. Otherwise, the, kind of the, the, some of the fray of the tunic would get in the way. So they would hem up the tunic in certain ways so that there would be complete freedom. You see, the belt of truth puts us in a place of freedom. It's not going to trip us up. Our thoughts and our actions are going to be led in truth and not error. The, the book of John says, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Think of a football player for a second, okay? He's got his helmet on. He's got his mouth guard in his mouth. He's got his pads on. He's got his pants on. But his pants are a little bit weak around the, the waist. He cinches that baby down, and now he's ready for war, ready for hike. That's what the belt of truth does. John Wesley in the 17th century, he was one of the greatest spiritual leaders we've seen. God used him to bring great revival he bring in an unbelievable course of change in society and culture. He memorized, they say, most of the New Testament. And here's why that's important. Effective soldiers are held together with God's truth. How's your battle going? Maybe you need to cinch down those thoughts. You need to cinch down your life with truth. Romans chapter 12 says that be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It matters who's teaching you're under. It matters what you think. It matters what you put in the belts of truth. The second one that we look at is, this, is the breastplate of righteousness. Now, what is that? The breastplate would guard the soldier's heart, the most vital of organs. Now, what does our heart have to do with anything? Well, here's, the, here's what it has to do with. The fact of where our heart currently is in its state. See, left by itself, our heart is rotten, wicked, and to be quite honest with you, we have no chance because we're broken, jacked up, sinful people. Romans chapter 3 says it like this. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. Together they have become worthless. There is no one who shows kindness, not even one. Now what does this mean? That means that salvation is only given through the cross. If you are to have a relationship with God, you find it in full trust and faith in Jesus Christ. You're broken. You're jacked up. You're messed up. All by your lonesome. You're far from Him. But if you want to walk with God, if you want to be a child of God, then what you do is you get on your knees 
and you submit and you say, Heavenly Father, I'm a sinner and I want to follow you. Would you begin to do this amount? Would you save me? And he does that. And when you begin to live in light of the cross, you, begin, you become to live in love like Christ. And this is just a fancy theological word for sanctification. You're looking more like his son. You're beginning to ta- talk different. You're beginning to walk different. And here's the deal. When you begin to do these things, your past is going to be thrown back at you. You're going to be walking. You're going to be charging. And what Satan is, wants to do, he's going to want to turn your head and he's going to start reminding you of all the things in your past. You're going to be wanting to walk, but instead you're going to start walk backwards. He's going to be like, remember what you did last week? Remember what you did last month? Remember what you did last year, last decade? Remember what you did to your children or to your ex-spouse? Remember what you did to those people or those people? And you're going to be like, that's right. I'm a nobody. He's going to take your, your nose and rub it in it. And then he's got you where he wants you. And the battle has been won. But Paul says, put on the breastplate of righteousness so that when those attacks come, you're not going to be taken backwards. You're going to stand your ground. The third weapon we're going to find is in verse 15. It says, And with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. He goes from instructions regarding your heart. Now he goes to looking at your feet. How many of you have a couple pairs of shoes in your closet at home? It's okay to be honest, all right? Yeah. How many of you love shoes? You're just like, yeah, I'm a shoe person. That's me. Yeah. He's talking about footwear. And the footwear he's talking about is the caliga. The Roman caliga was an open-toed sandal. And the caliga was built and made for warfare. Not running, but for close contact, move forward warfare. There would be these spikes on the bottom of the shoe that would go down. They'd put nails through them. And they were built in such a way, not for running, but for moving forward at a very sure and steady pace. Kind of like an offensive lineman wears. They don't build cleats for running. They build cleats for those guys to wear. They're not swayed to the left or the right. They're swayed to go forward. You see, these things are built so that you're not pushed back in the battle, but you take ground in the battle. So when peace is nowhere to be found, the gospel of peace, as Paul says, brings us peace. Why? Because we have assurance. Why? Because we have forgiveness. Why? Because he is with us. We take ground with proper footwear. The fourth weapon, verse 16, in addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Now in Greek armies, the the shields were small. They would attack. They would have a small shield and a spear a lot of times. But in Roman armies, the, the shields would be two and a half feet wide, Four feet tall, and because I'm 6'6", six, six, it would come up to here on me, right? <laughs> but these shields were very big, and they were cumbersome. And what would happen because of it is that they couldn't move around a lot, but they would take on the fiery darts of the enemy, and they'd move forward with their spear, with their sword. And they were covered with this material that would literally extinguish the flaming arrows of the enemy. And that's exactly what Paul wants you to vividly see. He wants you to see that when those arrows come at you, the shield of faith will uh, extinguish them. Now, what does that mean? The shield of faith. Faith is what draws you and connects you to God. Faith is what moves you forward. I love how one pastor friend of mine, he says it this way. He says, you know, faith and half of it is remembering who you are in Christ and walking in victory in that.
The Bible says, stay alert, stand firm in the faith, show encouragement, be strong. The fifth weapon we're going to look at in verse 17 says, take the helmet of salvation. The helmet was worn. It was the last thing to be put on the head. It was hot. And so you know what? They didn't really want to deal with it, but it brought assurance. You know, you give a little kid a football helmet and all of a sudden he's Dick, he's Dick Butkus, right? He's the Chicago Bears linebacker and he is invincible. You give a guy a football helmet and he becomes a human missile many times. It's confidence. It's assurance. The Roman helmet was on the head and it protected the, the side of the, the head as well. And in the same way, Christ, the nail-pierced hands of Christ, would put on the helmet of salvation on us so that we know that we are his. That nothing can snatch us. Nothing can take us. That if you are in Jesus Christ, no matter what has taken place in your life, he's not going to leave your side. And then the, finally, the sixth weapon that I want to talk about this morning is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit. The sword of the Spirit is the one offensive weapon that you've got. And it's that weapon where you can destroy, obliviate, level the enemy. Oh, how do you do that? Well, look at Jesus for a second. I told him at the beginning of the sermon that Jesus would speak to Satan. He does so. 40 days, 40 nights, he's tempted, right? He's attacked. The invisible war is raging. Now it's visible because Satan appears to, before him. And, and as he's attacked, what begins to happen is, is that he's attacked with all these different choices and lies, and all these things begin to take place. Now, how many of you have been attacked this morning? Maybe you haven't been attacked in quite a while. And the reason why is because you're not in the game. You see, Satan attacks when you are the church, not going to church. Satan attacks when you're generous with your resources. Satan attacks when you're trying to follow him. Satan attacks when you're trying to serve your wife, you're trying to serve your husband. Satan attacks when you're trying to do what called... Uh, Christ called you to do. Satan attacks when you're trying to live the life that Jesus wants you to live. When you're doing those things, that's when attack happens. What did Jesus do in attack? Well, he, yield, he wields the sword of the Spirit. Psalm 119 says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I may not sin against God. You see, if you're going to wield the sword of the Spirit in your life, it's got to be here before it can come out here and it can come out and attack. That's exactly what happens. Satan says to Jesus, hey, I know you're hungry. Turn this rock into bread. Jesus could have done it in a heartbeat. But what does Jesus do? He says, no, man shall not live by bread alone. Right? Can I be honest with you this morning? How many of you actually even know where your sword is? Is it underneath your bed? Is it in a table at home? Is it the big, big Bible that's on your your, your coffee table at home that's gathering dust, or, or now it's on our smartphones. We know where our Facebook app is. I know where my ESPN app is on my phone, but do we know where the Bible app is on our phone? That's why we're so excited about the New Testament project in our lobby. You can go out and look at it. Why? Because there's 17,000 plus unreached people groups in the world that don't have the sword of the Spirit in their heart language, and this church is saying, you know what? That's not good enough. We're going to translate one sword of the Spirit so that they can wield the, the sword against the enemy. 
You see, Jesus chose the weapon of choice, and he quoted Scripture. He waves the sword at Satan. Hebrews 4 says, For the word of the Lord is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword. The Roman sword looked a lot like this. This is actually a replica. They would have that shield, and then they would attack. And what it looks like to wield your sword is that when Satan attacks your family or your marriage, and when he attacks your children or your friendships— you wield the sword. Love is patient. Love is kind. It takes no record of wrongs. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, submit to your husbands. Children, obey and honor your parents for this is right. When attack comes, you wield the sword when you're fearful and anxious. Matthew chapter 6, verse 32 and following. Uh, Tomorrow has enough worries of its own. Psalm 46, 1 and 2. For God is our refuge and our strength, and even when the mountains fall into the sea. Psalm 46, 10. Be still and know that I am God. Psalm 121, 1 and 2 says, Where does my help come from? It comes from the Lord, the creator of heaven and earth. When the the enemy attacks, you wield the sword and you attack back. When you're attacked in your calling, and you're serving Christ, when you give generously, when you give your talents, when you give your treasure and your time to him, and what you get back is all these setbacks, all of this heartache, and the dreams that God had given you feel like that they've just been dashed upon the rocks, and there's attack after attack. You you wield the spirit of the Lord in the scripture, and you say, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, brethren, be immovable, steadfast, knowing that your work in the Lord is not in vain. You Attack back. Paul says you wield this sword. And when you do, victory is seen. He then goes on and says, you know what? With all prayer, he calls and petitions the followers of Christ to pray and for you to continually have that mindset. Now, we're not going to go into that. I've covered prayer in the past recently. But as you leave today, we have a handout for you to, to literally instruct you how to pray the, against the invisible war. As you leave, we're going to hand you each of you. Make sure you get one. We started this series out, and we looked at Joshua, the spiritual warfare book of the Old Testament. And then we looked, we've been looking at Ephesians, the New Testament spiritual warfare book. Well, I want to close with the idea and thought about Joshua. You have Moses and you have Joshua, and God takes Moses up and and says, you see all that territory that I promised your uh, family members and the nation of Israel? And Moses says, yeah. He says, you're not going to go there, but it's going to be your successor, your You're an apprentice, I'm sorry, Joshua. Moses never sees it. And then he comes to Joshua and he says, it's time for you to take the territory that I've given my people into that land. And then he says this, I want you in verse 9 to be strong and courageous because I will never leave your side. I will always be with you wherever you go. You see, the battle is being waged And the war is up for grabs. And the question is, how bad do you want it? Because you're going to get hurt, no doubt. But how bad do you want it? He says, Joshua, be strong and courageous. Take that territory. So God is offering us 
the promises he has, and now the, the battle is being waged. And what we have the choice of in this place and in our life is to step into the territory that God is promising to us. And what I, what I mean by that is I believe that God is going to ask certain people in this room to begin to fight for their marriage. That you're on the ropes and you're about to quit and the thoughts have already been there and you're thinking it'd be better if we were apart and you know what, there's more fish out in the sea and the kids will be fine and right now God wants you to start fighting. I believe that God wants you to start fighting for your children. Everyone else has given up on them. He said, fight for your kids. I believe that God is calling some of you right now in this place to begin to fight for your career that God wants you to move in. I believe that God wants you right now to step up and to begin to fighting for your own neighborhood, your, right, your city, the drug problem in our area, the homelessness in our area. I believe God is putting on some of our minds right now that it's time for you to fight for these areas, your neighborhoods. I believe that God is stepping up and calling a lot of us to take this church and, and serve this community and to lift up the name of Jesus like it's never been lifted up for in the life of this church. And the question is that I have for you is how bad do you want victory? Because that, my friends, is what we have to decide. So we have the weapons, we have the strategy, we have the foundation, and now the question is, will we fight? Will we Will we struggle, but will we eventually win?